Hello and welcome to another episode of The Hammer, an umpire podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Weber. I've got several segments this episode, including an interview. I haven't had an interview for a while, so we'll talk about that in just a second. But um, I kind of took things in a little bit different direction. I've got some typical things like four tips for talking to coaches that they mentioned in Referee Magazine. That's similar to some stuff we've talked about the last few weeks. I've got more quiz questions this week. The MHSAA High School um, Postseason Examination came out this week here in the state of Michigan. And uh, I've got the first five questions there that we'll go over and talk about. Um, I've gotten some messages and some emails from people. And uh, sometimes, you know, guys get a little bit uh, frustrated and down when they're umpiring. So I've got a little segment that's a, a little attitude pep talk for you. And for my umpire spotlight, I took it in a different direction. Instead of focusing on just uh, one umpire, I'm, I'm focusing on and I'm spotlighting the state of Michigan because I don't know if you know this, but you'll soon find out. We've got a good crop of uh, amateur and professional umpires that are current and former big league and um and collegiate umpires from the state of Michigan. So we'll talk about a few of those guys. But the first segment that I'll lead right into right after this is uh, my interview with Matt Watowski, who's a uh, going to soon be a minor league umpire this coming spring and, and summer. Uh, he is from West Michigan, right here from Grand Rapids. I've had the pleasure of working with Matt on numerous occasions over the last five years or so. And uh, we're actually scheduled to work a few games this spring as well before he heads off to pro ball. He, um, you know, uh, was from Grand Rapids, played high school baseball here, went to school here, went to Central Michigan University where he played club ball, and then um, came back to Grand Rapids and was working and and being around his family and everything. And he um, started umpiring uh, Little League baseball. Then he caught on with the right people. Bruce Doan Jr. is um, the big umpire honcho here in uh, West Michigan and has guided lots of people uh, through the years, including Mike Duffy, uh, who's worked College World Series, Mark Ewell, uh, who's head of the MHSAA and has uh, worked a couple of College World Series, and many others as well to help them on their umpiring careers. And uh, he kind of got with uh, Matt and kind of helped guide him too. Matt has a very talented umpire and has um, lots of lots of things going for him but he also as we'll talk about in the interview has a motor and that to get better and to do things the right way and to learn the rules as much as he can uh, and apply those on the baseball field and, and learn his mechanics and he's always trying to get better which is um, what everybody should be trying to do so he um, was chosen for one of the 18 available minor league jobs uh, this year after he went to Wendelstedt and then he went to the the advanced camp and then he was picked for that. He'll find out where he's going in March. But uh, he's down in Florida right now. I saw him last week when he was here in Michigan, but he's down in Florida because he likes to work the Russ Matt tournament down there. And he's down there a little bit early uh, to go uh, meet up with some minor league umpires there and see them work some games and uh, meet up with other umpire people in, in Florida. So he was driving in his car and, um, you know, we have a feature here on the Anchor Podcast where we can like record 
uh, an interview. So I use that feature and it's nice that they have that, but it's not like a picture perfect app. <laughs> okay. Especially when someone's driving through Florida and there's some at buildings and it's all over their through their Wi-Fi signal, not Wi-Fi, Wi-Fi for me, but through their cell signal. So um, I had to do a little editing, but I think it came out pretty well. And I think that you'll enjoy uh, Matt's candor and um, information about Windowset, which is maybe something some of you might be interested in at some point. And just to know what you have to go through to become minor league umpire, which is quite a lot, to be honest with you. And it's quite a feat just to uh, just to get through the camp, let alone get picked. So I think you'll enjoy that. You can sit back and, and listen to my interview with Matt um, in this next segment. And as I always say, hey, make sure that those speakers and earbuds are working well because you don't want to miss this. Hey everybody, we've got Matt Wachowski here uh, today with us, uh, soon to be professional umpire uh, this coming uh, spring and summer, and uh, he's on his way to uh, watch some umpires and talk to some umpires in Florida. And he's from West Michigan like I am, but uh, where are you headed to right now, Matt? I'm headed to Lake Myrtle Sports Complex down in Auburndale, um, going to meet up with a couple minor league guys and kind of see how everything operates and, you know, kind of get the field uh, preseason. Yep. So are you gonna, you're going to be getting some reps in yourself? You're going to be working any games or anything down there? Uh, yep. So the majority of my schedule starts on March 7th, and then I'm working through the 19th, and then um, in emergency situations, just kind of filling in. And Is this the Russ Matt stuff down there? Okay. Yep. Yes, this is. And you've been down there the last couple of years. How has that kind of helped you to develop as an umpire, do you think? You know, I think anytime you can get out and uh, get reps in under your belt um, is beneficial. And just to see plays and getting yourself into some situations and uh, just that experience overall has uh, been pretty beneficial. And then it, it really helps, you know, when you get back home and your full season starts up, uh, you're kind of in mid-season form. Um, from the yes, get-go. So that's awesome. Do you, I would say it's definitely helped think the, uh, How's the level of competition there compared to up here in the Midwest that you usually see? Uh, so a lot of the teams are from northern, uh, the northern region. Um, a lot of them are just coming down for spring break, trying to get the games in, just like umpires. You know, we want to see pitches. Before. A lot of the teams are uh, northern teams, and I'd say it's pretty similar there's a lot of colleges from the local area that come down here and it's nice to kind of build that reputation up with them before the season starts and then you know you... all right there you are what's that i think it's all these concrete houses down here yeah maybe so <laughs> I, said, okay. I think it's all the concrete so, houses um, down here <laughs> tell us how you kind of got into umpiring you know what made you start getting into umpiring You know, when I uh, first started out, I kind of like a lot of the guys that get into it. Um, I started out the local Little Leagues. Um, I was always a player, and it's just something I did to make a little extra cash during the summer. And the passion for it just kind of, you know, grew on me. 
and I really enjoyed the umpiring aspect of the game. And then I, uh, after high school, I went up to college, and like most of us do, we, you know, some of us uh, get out of the game. I was actually fortunate to play three years of club baseball, and um, I kind of hung up the cleats after that. And then I, uh, I ran into Bruce Stone um, after working one of my Little League games uh, a summer, um, you know, during summer break, and we kind of hit it off a little bit. And he's like, hey, uh, you know, what are they paying you? And I told him, and he's like, "Hey, if you're if you're really serious about this, you know, let's uh, you know let's talk a little bit." And we kind of got to talking, and it really took off from there. I uh, I attended my first camp that next season, and uh, I joined the West Michigan Umpires Association, the Grand Rapids Umpire Alliance, um, and you know, I just it just kind of grew on me a little more. Um, I took it a little more seriously after that first training session. Um, you know, I worked two years in high school baseball before I really decided to, you know, step my game up. And I attended as many camps and clinics as possible in the area. Um, I joined the CBUA in 2017, I believe. It was 2017. And I uh, received my first uh, collegiate game assignments from Bruce Doan. Um, I believe there are a couple of them where some JV uh, local NAIA teams and some JUCO games. And, you know, I, I kept maintaining the idea that I needed to get better every single day um, and I continued to go into a bunch of clinics. I think I've attended upwards of 15 clinics, you know, in the five, six years that I've been umpiring. And, uh, you know, I've always had that drive to get better. And then, you know, as opportunity comes along, I just kind of run with it. And, uh, I mean, it's all really worked itself out. I had the opportunity to work up in Alaska last summer. Um, I was up there for several weeks. Um, and, I, you know, that whole experience was pretty surreal and pretty amazing, uh, being able to get to travel that far and see a new landscape that you'd never seen before. And then when I got back from there, um, I met up with John White. Bruce connected me with John White, who was the uh, basically the UIC for the Northwoods League. And uh, he extended an invite out for me to go out there and work. And I was jumping at the bit. You know, I talked to my wife and uh, she really supported that decision. So I went and worked in the Northwoods League for the second half of the season. I was fortunate enough to get two, uh, two series in the postseason out there. And then as the season ended, John extended a scholarship opportunity out to me to attend one of the professional umpire school, one of the two professional umpire schools, either the uh, minor league academy in Vero Beach or uh, Wendelson Umpire School. And after talking to, you know, several of my mentors and, you know, close friends and guys that have been in the game, um, I made the decision to attend Wendelset. And uh, it's, you know, it's been the greatest decision of my life other than marrying my wife, really. I mean, it's uh, it still really hasn't hit me at the fact that I'm going to be working professional baseball. Um, but I'm, you know, I'm really happy for the opportunity. Yes, for sure. You know, I mean, you certainly have that off. drive. I think, uh, I think any good umpire, whether you're just a really good little league umpire, high school, collegiate, obviously professional, you always are trying to get better. And I think that's the thing that guys don't always realize that, um, you know, yeah, you've had some opportunities. You've had a little bit of luck here and there, um, but you work really hard at it. And no matter what, you're always every game trying to get better. 
you know. Um, that's the thing that I think that some guys, they kind of lose that along the way. And then that's when you start regressing and, and maybe you get yourself out of the game. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, being a student in the game is probably the biggest uh, the biggest factor in getting better each and every single day. You know, you have to be able to take constructive criticism from those that you trust and it's not always going to be something you want to hear. Sometimes they're going to tell you, you know, you're lazier than hell out there that day. And you just got to kind of, you know, take it as it is, you know, and make the adjustment yes. appropriate. You got to kind of have that motor to better yourself, to like keep going and um, take the good and that, the bad as things come. I mean, I think that's a tough thing for a lot of officials. I mean, we, we're talking, I'm talking about anybody that's officiating is to like keep moving and, and have maintain it's a fine balance between maintaining your confidence and um, and also you know trying to get better and, and taking constructive criticism. Absolutely, I think you gotta. And another important thing is you gotta surround yourself with the, you know the right-minded people, the guys that want to push each other to get better and are willing to give you that constructive criticism because it's easy to be like, yeah, you know, you did really well out there, and just you know, everybody just kind of goes on with their way and you're not really, you know, pushing each other to get better. Whereas, you know, if you surround yourself with the right group of people, the guys that are taking it seriously, um, everybody's going to get yeah. better from that opportunity. Yeah, I, you know? I 100% agree. So, so you went down to Windlestep. There was like 60 guys roughly down. How many guys were at Windlestep for you? No, there was – so there was 60 guys from both schools that attended the academy. There was 100 and – it was just under 140 that attended Wendell Stett. And then I'm not yeah. exactly sure what the total number was at the academy. So 30 guys from each I think it was right around it that same the, figure. Like advanced thing to, to try to get a job, right? And um, and then there was 18 jobs yep. like in the regular professional, you know, minor leagues there. Um, and then 14 others in some, like kind of on standby, yep. that kind of thing. Is that what, how it worked? Well, the 14 others, they're, they're not on standby. They're still they're in the system, and they're going to be working in the okay. CPL, which is basically a, a collegiate summer league. And, and they are in the minor league system, so as movement happens you know, throughout the season, guys get released. or like, I mean, all the yeah. guys retiring in Major League Baseball, that's going to create movement even prior to the season. So there's going to be you know, six or seven so jobs kind of that open up for those guys that are in the CPL. Kind of like, it's kind of like a AAA guy that's going up and down. They're kind of like that. They're kind of moving in and out. Or wherever they need it. Yeah, okay. but they're. They, I mean, once they like, once they're they're in, they're in. Okay. And then they'll call they'll call guys over from the reserves. So and obviously, bring them up into the CPL. Think, Holy cow! <laughs> I was one of the eighteen guys that just got in straight away. You know, which is pretty pretty crazy. You know? Yeah, but you know, yeah, like I, I going to school, I never really, you know, it was always my dream, and I was going to work as hard as I could and take everything in. And I just seeing yeah, a lot of the, the guys because I was one of the older got, guys that uh, went down to school. Uh, one of the jobs, and, do you think? Yeah, yeah, probably two or three of us that are right around the same age, and uh, that to me was kind of surreal when you're you know when you're almost thirty and you're competing a bunch of eighteen to twenty two, twenty three year olds. You know, you just kind of look at it a little bit differently, and. Uh, the, the approach you take is a little bit different than some of those guys, you know, they're coming right out of college and high school and they're, you know, in peak shape. 
Whereas you, you know, yeah. for me, a guy like my age, we, you know, we really have to work at it to maintain ourselves. And, uh, it was just kind of yeah, a, a sure surreal experience to be selected in professional baseball. You had certainly benefited some of that, you know, too, you know, um, yeah, absolutely. I don't see yeah. myself getting a job when I was 22 or 21 years old. What know? kind of things I think that did, sense of did, uh, really did help. you know, you learned through, um, you, you started at Little League, you did high school, you've done collegiate baseball, you've done a lot of high-level summer collegiate stuff. Um, what stuff seemed to stand out that benefited mm-hmm. you when you were in, in the pro school? Um, a lot of the stuff that I learned was reiterated and i think that goes along with just surrounding yourself with the right people um you know a lot of it's already been taught to me and instilled in me um just from attending some of the camps and talking to my some of my mentors um but the one thing that really stood out to me and when you and you talk to a lot of these pro guys you uh a lot of the jobs aren't lost on the field you, you tend to lose your job off the field and how you carry yourself as a person. And it's more so about being a good person because once you get into professional baseball, a lot of the talent pool is right there. You know, it's all about the same. It's on par with one another because um, you're all taught the same way. So it's a matter of being a good person, being a cr- good crew guy, um, having your partner's backs in, you know, tough situations and, uh, you know, having the courage mm-hmm. to make the calls when they, yeah, you know, when they happen. Yeah, I definitely see that. What's something that you learned in pro school that you didn't necessarily anticipate learning that just like, yeah, that's kind of changed the way I umpire, you know, is there any, I'm sure there's maybe several things, but what's something that stands out? Um, I would, you know, that's a pretty good question. Um, I would say the one thing that I really, you know, took away is, you know, timing and, proper positioning and self-evaluation those two things are going to be the biggest reasons why you get calls wrong and uh you know we can you know you can always make slight adjustments here and there but i think um just proper positioning is really important and not taking false steps you want to be moving with the purpose out there hmm. and uh, that's something and that's they very good. so that's something one. that you'll probably just no matter where you're working if you, you know, for however far you make it in pro ball, you eventually you know, might be out of that. And then you're probably working college ball. You're always going to kind of have that with you, you know, and how to evaluate yourself. Because uh-huh. that is a big thing. Guys don't always do a good job evaluating themselves. You know, I think they're too easy on themselves sometimes. Absolutely. You know, and I think if you really want to get better, you really have to be your biggest critic because not yeah. everybody's going to have your interests at heart, you know. Yeah. And that's just kind of that's kind of the downside of it, uh, the job, but it's you know it's a reality. Yeah, I agree. I can remember one and time. It's part of our competitive nature. Asking Bruce, hey, what do you think I need to work on? This and that. And what he told me was, you know what you need to work on. <laughs> you know, and and I thought, well, yeah, I do, but yeah, I want you to tell absolutely. me too. But it's like I don't need somebody to tell me. You know what you got to work on. You know what your weaknesses are more than anybody. You know. So yeah, that's true. So just real mm-hmm. quickly. Um, so what were, you know, you were going like seven days a week down at Windlestat. What kind of stuff were you doing down there? You know, just a real quick kind of overview for guys that don't really know what pro school is like. What was it like down there? So, so every day we started off in the classroom and we'd do like three, three and a half, maybe four hours, depending on the, the lecture of rules knowledge. We went through every single bit of the rule book you could imagine from field dimensions to legal glove sizes to uh, That's got to be valuable too. I mean, down the road, we covered yeah. everything. 
Absolutely. And just like they really pushed rulebook terminology on you, like even in like live games and demos and control games, they really push rulebook terminology on you. So when you do have that coach come out on you, um, you know, you're able to explain it to them verbatim by the rule book and you kind of, and they, they said you gain, you gain some respect, especially when they go back and look in the rule book and you're like, that's exactly what he told yeah. me. You know what I mean? It's like, this guy knows what he's doing. Um, it's just, a, you know, kind of, it's like a respect factor out there. And you're just, you're trying to gain that trust from those managers the entire time you're working. And then, uh, so you go from the, the classroom and then you'll go out to the fields uh, week one, we call it as students, we call it hell week because you're in formation the majority of the time out there. You're going through out mechanics, safe mechanics, strikes on a right handed batter, you know, strikes on a left handed batter, balls on a lefty, balls on a righty. And you're just, you know, you're building that foundation from the very beginning. So it doesn't matter if you've called the, you know, the World Series in college baseball or if you're never called a pitch in your life you're going to go out there and you're going to get that same education from, you know, from the very beginning. And they're going to just build, you know, either reiterate or build that foundation for you out there. And then from formation, you'll go into, uh, you'll probably have a demo, just a demonstration on uh, how we're going to conduct our control games for that day. And then control games, it's all instructor. All of our instructors are setting up situations on the field. So, I mean, you're seeing everything from catcher's interference to, box with catcher's interference and an infield fly. Um, I mean, they're throwing every, they're the one percenters that might happen in your career. They're throwing it at you so you can see it, you know, and maybe it clicks, you know, five years from now, all of a sudden that situation mm-hmm. happens and you just revert back to umpire school and you come out and you, you know, you make one hell of a call yep. and you might even, you know, a lot of guys get promoted that way. You know, they come out, you, they have that one percenter play. They make, you know, they nail it. And yeah, that's uh, awesome. Everybody sees that. And then from con- yep, from control games, you'll have your lunch. Um, and then you'll go right in, you know, later on in the in the uh, course, we ha- started having live games. It's, Wendelstedt is – it's great because they're the only school that has live game situations. Um, the academy, they do um, – from what I heard, they do mostly control games, whereas Wendelstedt, they'll have live games out there. So they, they get to see your instincts and they get to, you know, they kind of judge you on that and evaluate you on your instincts and – your mobility and, and with the experience so you know, it's kind of beneficial to get out there. And, yeah. Yeah. I would, yeah, I would think so. You know, so seven days a week and then you were studying right. when you weren't on the, on the field and when the oh. sessions were over and everything. And, um, yep. So pretty intense. Yeah. And, and, and yeah, it was really intense. And the nice thing about being in Daytona too, is like, it's, it's easy to yeah. be stuck on baseball and you, you can get drained, you know, when you're working that much. So it, it, you know, there was a, you know, a couple Sundays where we'd have off and guys would still go to the fields for, you know, several hours, just trying to get some more reps in. Um, a lot of it's footwork, you know, double play footwork, drop steps and whatnot, you know, pause, pause, read and react drills. Uh, we, we, you know, it's something we emphasize on Sundays as a group. And then you could, you know, you could just kind of relax whether it be you go have a couple of beverages on the beach or uh, you guys want to go get a burger and a beer, um, you know, it was nice to be able to just get away and just kind of, you know, relax and get your mind off baseball for a little bit. And then come Monday, you know, you're just, you know, reinvigorated yeah. and ready to go. So from working and ready to go. Woods, so. They gave you like a thousand dollar scholarship. How much um, does it end up kind of costing down there if somebody was looking at doing it? 
So tuition without, so I did, I, I basically maximized my opportunity trying to save a little bit of money. It's still expensive, but I tried to save uh, a little bit of money. Um, and well, not necessarily me personally saving money, but I, uh, it's $2,500 for the, like the base tuition. That's without the housing or the food. And then instead of going out and buying meals every single day, I, I did the uh, mm-hmm. three, three a day meal plan. And I think, and then I did double occupancy room. You can do a single occupancy room and it'll cost you a little bit more, but I did double. It's kind of, it's, I think it's more beneficial. They see that you're willing to work, you know, room and live with other guys. Cause that would come be maybe from a different ball. culture, just, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you really don't get the option of who you get to live with. So I think it's beneficial to, you know, kind of get out of your shell and try to meet new guys. Um, and they, I think, you know, it's, they they like that you know they want to see a guy that's outgoing and willing to get to know other people and just you know being a crew guy is really important it's one of the biggest evaluations i would say yeah, down here is sure. being somebody that these guys want to work with um but overall i'd say you know i think it cost me about forty five hundred dollars and that was with uh tuition you know the housing arrangements and then the food arrangements and then I brought a little bit of money to spend down there, just you know, when we wanted to go out and whatnot. Mm. So I, I would yeah. say probably about five thousand, fifty five hundred. Like if you're gonna do, you know, if you're gonna go on yeah. excursions so or whatever, just to hang out with the guys, go there and try to get a pro job. That's about how much it would be. But if you're just like, like an older dude like me, yep. and you wanted to go down there, what kind of options are there for guys that just want to kind of get the knowledge and be better at whatever level they're working? What do you think? <clears throat> So they have they have three there's three programs that you can go down. So the professional program is a five week, five to six week course depending, um, depending on the, the year. This year it was a little bit shorter. Um, so the professional course is the you know the course that you want to go to if you're trying to get a job in major or in professional baseball. And then you have they have the op- option where you can go uh, the first two weeks of the course, which is, I think it's that's pretty beneficial. Um, it's really beneficial because you get that, that foundation, you, you know, you get out there and they, they teach you everything from the ground up rotations and, every, and those first two weeks are really, I would say are pretty beneficial for guys that go down there. And then the second two weeks you get to experience the control games. The long- Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, that's I kind of lost you there for a second, but that's okay. No big deal. Oh. <laughs> so, all right. So, what do you think? Um, what are probably the possibilities as far as where you might be working this this coming season? What do you think? Um, I mean, you you never really know what happens with minor league baseball because there's there's already been a lot of movement. Um, there is the possibility of uh, you know being invited out to extended spring training in April, early April. And then you could get placed in, you know, short A. But I would say 90% of the guys that get hired in professional baseball will go into the rookie league, uh, uh, rookie leagues, which will either be the Gulf Coast League down in Florida or the Arizona League. Hmm. Okay. Yep. So um, is there one that you kind of prefer or you just, you're not really caring? What do you think? Uh, so I would – personally, I've heard some not horror stories about the heat, but it, it like – down in the Gulf Coast League, you're dealing with 100 degree temps and you know 80 yeah. percent humidity. I think I would prefer to go to the Arizona League, but a lot of it's based on you know geographics, and I'm kind of like right in the middle, being in Michigan. Yeah. So 
I'm yeah. I'm gonna be happy with you know either way wherever I get to go I'm I'll be more than happy with so. So how what is your wife and daughter thinking about all this stuff? They have been the rock of this whole whole deal. My wife, my daughter, and then even my mother-in-law and my parents have really uh, they've really stepped in and you know it's, they've been pushing me to chase this dream ever yeah. since I made the decision. And uh, you know I've consulted with every single one of them before I decided to come down here. And they are, uh, I'm really grateful for their support because without them, I don't think I'd be here. You know, this has been a dream of mine for the last four years and yeah. every, all the stars kind of aligned the summer. And, you know, after getting to talk to my wife, she's like, you, you know, I I've seen how much you've grown as a person, um, from baseball and from, you know, from your umpiring experiences. And I think, you know, it would be really beneficial for you and possibly one day for our family down the road, um, if you know you decided to chase this dream so it was kind of an easy decision when i when she made that comment so that's cool i mean i met you about five years ago and i remember probably about four years ago you were talking about doing it and uh, obviously it's a good decision now in hindsight mm-hmm. because you know you, you made it through and you, and you got a job but even if you wouldn't have it still you know there's nothing wrong with that absolutely but um you know i mean the, the thing is, too, and, and I, you know, you see this in the umpiring world. You know this as well or better than I do, that there's a lot of jealousy that goes on. Mm-hmm. Some guys see what guys get. Hey, they're getting out of assignment, whether it be high school guys or college guys. and Well, that guy's younger than me or this or that. And, and man, you just got to, like, be happy for people that they, they accomplish things. And, um, and they're working hard at it because nothing's given to you in this game. I mean, yeah, you, you make connections and maybe you get a couple opportunities. But if you can't, you can't cut it. You're not getting it again, you know. You got to earn it. So, I mean, I, I see that stuff with you, and and I know you probably have dealt with that too. I mean, at, yeah, at times with guys. Yeah, know? I think uh, you know, envy is kind of a career killer. You really have yeah. you, you really have to be a you know a crew guy and support one another, and just to, you know you got to appreciate somebody's hard work too. Um, yep. And you know when you when you kind of do some self reflection and wondering how somebody that might be younger or um, we'll say less experienced based just based on the number of years they worked, how they're getting those games, you know, you might want to just kind of self-reflect and just be like, even talk to them and see what they're doing, you know, kind of take in that knowledge because there's a reason they're, you know, they're they're getting those assignments and instructors are taking note and, you you know, you never want to get down on yourself, but, you know, self-reflection is, you know, pretty important. What can I do better? What, you know, what do I got to do to get better? whether it be, you know, cut some weight or, you know, increase my mobility a little bit, whatever it may be, you know, yep. we, we got to be there for one another. We just got to be a support group for one another. I agree. And not everybody can work every single level. And right. people have to realize their ceiling, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, you, you go as high as you can. I mean, maybe your ceiling gets a little higher if you keep improving, but you got to <clears> realize everybody's got a ceiling. <laughs> you know, some, you know, I, I don't know. Some guys are they're a little bit crazy about what they think that they can accomplish at times, you know? So. You and I think, to... you, I think another important factor too, is you got to trust the system in the process. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yep. You really have to trust the process, you know, go to as many clinics as you can build that network of guys around you and uh, just trust the process because every, I think everything's going to work out and you might be in the game for 30 years. And to me, whether it's working little league at 30 years or whether you're working professional baseball for 30 years, that's a successful career. Yes. Being able to, you know, being able to maintain that in my eyes is, is a successful career. What, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter what level you work because we're all ambassadors of the game. 
And yeah. to, you know, to be able to promote the game of baseball for 30 years is pretty, pretty freaking awesome. Yeah, I mean, it's a great game for able to be in it. That's you know a great thing to begin with, and um, you know the people that you encounter and the stuff that you can accomplish with them. I mean, like I know you've made some new and and probably long lasting friends uh, throughout just this process in the last yeah, couple absolutely. months or so. You know, so stuff that you'll remember for a long time because that's what I always look at it. You know sometime we're all going to be old and not be able to be on the field or do a whole lot. We're going to be sitting in our house. Okay. And you want to think back at all the stuff that hopefully you accomplished, whatever level that was and have good memories about it. And the people Mm -hmm. that you knew, that's really all we're going to have in the end. I mean, you might get some, you know, medals or I don't know, whatever, something you can put on your wall or something or a baseball or something from something, but still, it's just what you have in your brain, you know, absolutely important thing. So yeah, for sure. Well, you know, I'm lucky that I've been able to work with you on uh, several occasions over the last few years, and we've got some games this year before you uh, take off uh, to work your pro ball. And uh, so I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, same here. And uh, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me on your your road trip down there in uh, sunny California. Or sunny California, <laughs> Florida. Florida, that is how it's yeah. Almost about the same now. So hopefully uh, there's going to be 90 degrees in a couple of days, I think, right? So Yeah, Wednesday is going to be nice and warm. Yeah, so. All right. Well, you have fun down there. And when you get done with the pro season and stuff, uh, I definitely want to have you back on and talk about how that went. Yeah, absolutely. I would love to discuss that. So what was uh, what what expectations you had and what was met, what wasn't. So. Yep. All right, man. Well, you take care, all right? All right. Thank you. I appreciate the call. Yep. Talk to you next time. Bye. See ya. As I usually do, I'm always looking over different things online and articles that have come through referee magazines and other officiating publications. And uh, I thought it was pretty interesting. I was talking about um, how you deal with coaches and players the last few weeks. And Referee Magazine had um, an article that's going to be, I think it's going to be in their next issue. It might be in the current one. The current one or the next issue. Uh, about uh, four tips uh, when talking to coaches. And some of it was similar things that I was talking about. Their number one tip was don't answer statements. I believe I mentioned that. And that is so true. You know, if a coach comes out and he just wants to say whatever it is he thinks, then you don't really have to say anything. You know, you can um, listen and be a good listener, I guess. And um, basically, you can ask, do you have a question for me, coach? Or, you know, if you know his first name, you should say his name. And if he doesn't, then uh, you say, okay, well, let's, let's get the game going here. And then you move on, all right? So sometimes that's just what they want to do. They want, they want to, you know, they're trying to fire up their players. They're trying to look good in front of their fan base. They want to just tell you what they thought so that they hope that something goes better their way Next time, that's it. They're not really questioning anything. They don't really want an answer to anything. If that's the case, you got to keep your mouth shut. Let them do the talking as long as they don't go over the line in some way and get the game moving. So good point there. Uh, Next thing that they had was don't escalate when talking to coaches. All right. So, yeah, again, this is the same type of thing where Maybe they think there was a bad call. 
uh, think that you got something wrong, whatever it is, uh, sometimes you've got to, you know, you've got to have as thick a skin as you can. And uh, obviously, if it becomes you statements, then you need to stand your ground and, and do something about that. But uh, you you can't dislike, you know, every little comment that they have, the way that they react to things in their competitive moments uh, escalated into a bigger situation than what it is. I'm not saying you got to take all this chirping, but you, well, part of it is there is some chirping. Um, you've got to know what you can take and what you can't and not escalate something out of control. Okay? So I guess that just takes some finesse and some abilities and that is part of what separates some umpires from others is their ability to uh, manage a game and manage what they need to manage from the chirping and let other things go third thing they mentioned was explain the rule and that was kind of um you know in the conversation i had with matt about um you know, if you can say the rule book terminology, you can explain why something was ruled on in a certain way uh, that gains you a huge amount of credibility and usually um, shuts down the disagreement or at least ends it. All right. Um, so you have to be able to explain it. You can't just blow it off. Um, and if you are in your rule book and you know what you're talking about and you can use rule book terminology you are so much farther ahead than everybody else and you're going to have less problems and then their fourth thing was watch your tone the way you say things your tone of voice you know whether you're loud or quiet or sarcastic or all those kind of things really do matter so obviously an even professional tone is what we're looking for even in the most heated situations that is a difficult thing to do, but uh, that's something that we all have to work on every game, um, especially when there is a, a disagreement on a call or a play and, you know, things, the wheels could come off in a situation. So practicing those things, being very hyper aware of those things and the way that you say things and your mannerisms and, uh, the pitch of your voice and the characteristics and volume of your voice and um, you know the understanding that that reflects the attitude that people have toward you is very, very important. So some good points that they had there. Um, you can check out that article if you get uh, Referee Magazine and, and look at it more specifically. But I thought it kind of touched on some points that uh, I had been making the last couple of weeks. Well, here in the state of Michigan, the official exam for postseason tournament consideration for high school umpires uh, came out this past week. The MHSAA, that's what we call our high school association. It's a 30-question uh, exam, and you know they allow you to have a PDF copy you can download, which I do. And then you get to take it one time. And if you get 80% or better, then you are in the mix for getting some postseason games potentially. It doesn't guarantee it. But uh, if you get less than 80%, you're not going to. So I decided that uh, it would be a good 
thing to go through some of these questions here on the podcast. So I'm going to go through five of them today and uh, kind of like I did for other quizzes that we've had. Um, I will read the question and the answers and um, you can kind of follow along in your in your head and decide which answer you think is correct and then I will give you the correct answer. Well, at least these first five. I haven't taken the, the exam yet. Um, I'm quite certain I'm, I'm correct on these ones, but if for some reason I'm not, then I will I do a correction in my next podcast or something. So first question, number one, runner on third, one out. The batter is crowding the front of the batter's box. His stride to hit the pitch places his front foot half in the box and half out of the box touching the line when he makes contact with the ball. Uh, he hits a dribbler to the shortstop who throws him out at first base and allows the runner on third to score on the play. This would be under rule 216.1G in your Federation rule book. So is it A, foul ball? Is it B, illegally batted ball? The batter is out and R3 re- returns. Or is it C, no penalty, the out stands, and the run counts? Well, the answer is C. No penalty, the out stands, and the run counts. As long as he's got part of his foot on the line, he's good to go. Um, Just like, you know, if he was standing in the batter's box, his whole foot's got to be out and make contact for you to get the out there. All right? Number two. In order to give an intentional base on balls, this is rule 243, A, the pitcher must throw four balls out of the strike zone, or B, the catcher or coach may only request to award the batter first base before the first pitch of the at-bat, or is it C, the catcher or coach may request to award the batter first base during any ball strike count. Well, if you said in your head to see, you are correct. The catcher or coach may request to award the batter first base during any ball or strike count. All right, number three. Failure to declare a player DH prior to the start of the game precludes the use of a player DH for the entire game, Rule 314. Is that true or is that false? Well, this is new for this year, so hopefully you remember. We've talked about these things before. That is true. You've got to declare it beforehand. You can't just do it in the middle of the game or something. Moving on to number four. Jones is listed as the starting designated hitter, regular DH. In the fourth inning, Smith pinch hits for Jones, which is correct. And again, this is rule 314. A, the role of the designated hitter is terminated for the remainder of the game. B, no one may pinch hit for the DH except for the player for whom he bats. Or is it C, Smith is the new DH. What's your answer? Hopefully you pick C. Smith is the new DH. This is like the old DH rule. You know somebody's going to screw up the old and the new together within a game and 
do an improper ruling, that's probably going to happen somewhere along the line. Hopefully not in your game, right? Or mine. All right, and then the final question for this episode. Number five, the batter comes to bat with one ear flap broken off, you know, on his helmet, which is required by rule. And this is rule 413B penalty. Is it A, the batter is called out and the coach is restricted to the dugout? Is it B, the batter can return to the dugout to retrieve a legal helmet without further penalty? Or is it C, both the batter and the head coach are ejected? Now, hopefully you didn't pick C because, man, that would uh, you'd have some issues <laughs> going on there. The correct answer is B. The batter can return to the dugout to retrieve a legal helmet without further penalty. Now, hopefully this doesn't become a habit, but, uh, yeah, we just want them to be properly equipped there with uh, a good helmet. All right, so those are the first five. Um, hopefully that was halfway interesting for you. And next week I'll do five more. Last couple weeks, I got a couple emails from uh, Troy Weber, who's an umpire out west in the Arizona area and the bordering states over there, um, about uh, a variety of different topics. And uh, Troy uh, experienced uh, something I think a lot of us go through from time to time with, uh, you know, frustrations in umpiring. And, you know, and this could apply to other sports officiating too, but. We know that uh, umpiring can be it can be a rough and tough um, avocation at times. You know, sometimes things just don't really go your way. And there was a stretch where things weren't really going his way with the way things were handled, as far as some ejections that he had and the way um, certain higher ups handled the situation. And he was just getting frustrated and 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 willing. Um, nearly willing to to just give it all up after you know putting some time and effort into this over the years um, but uh, you know he kind of found his you know new wind in the situation and you know he listened to some of my podcasts and started thinking about some things I guess and and decided that um, he wanted to stick with it and that brings me to the point that you know that's kind of the way things are sometimes man there's ups and downs in umpiring and we always see people that quit. We we know we all know people that have quit it. That maybe were pretty good umpires, but the um, the mental aspect of things. And I'm not saying that they're not necessarily tough because anybody that straps on the gear and goes behind the plate and you know tries to call balls and strikes and does it for any length of time, you you had some courage, man. Because there's a lot of cowardly people out there that we hear <laughs> we're doing games that don't even have any shred of guts to go back there and do it whether you're good or bad at it i mean at least you went back there and you tried um so and there's a lot of people that say all kinds of stuff about officials at all kinds of sporting events that don't have the guts to get out there and do what people are trying to do we we all know what it is. I mean, you only know it if you've been out there trying to um, do your best job, whether that's good or bad. But uh, that's really the thing, man. We've got to kind of be 
be there for each other, um, to pull people through, and to put ego aside. Um, there's a lot of jealousy in, in, in sports officiating. I know there is an umpiring of people getting assignments or moving up quicker than what other people do. And sometimes you're like, well, well, it's good that guy quit because I get more of an opportunity. That might be true, but that's not really the kind of attitude that we want. And we want it's, – it's a lot easier um, to be happy for people, truly happy for them and want them to succeed. Um, for example, I mean, I, you know, you see my interview here with Matt. You know, Matt's much younger than I am and has moved way – quicker through different, um, you know, umpiring um, opportunities than I have. And obviously he's going to be a professional umpire, but I'm really happy for him. I'm not saying that I always wouldn't have been necessarily jealous. Maybe a few years ago I might have been. But I kind of, I don't know, I guess you just know where you're at and uh, what you're trying to accomplish and, and you're happy for whatever it is you might accomplish. And, you know, you just... You just are happy for those other people. That just makes things so much easier than being so worked up about that. Also, you know, when things get rough, you got to know that it just things seem to go in cycles. You know, sometimes, man, you just have it's just like getting hit by pitches when you're calling pitches, right? You might go weeks and you don't get hit at all. Then you have like three plate jobs, you know three consecutive plate jobs where you just get drilled in the face every time and you get hit on the arm and everything's going wrong and, and you can't like not find have the ball find you at some point or another. That's just the way things go. Sometimes you'll go a whole long time and there's really no issues in your games. There's no crazy kind of plays. You don't have any ejections. Then you might have a week where it just seems like the, the big top goes up every time you step out onto the field. There's some crazy thing happening, and you got to deal with it. That's what it is. Um, but as we, and as we talked about in an email together, the big thing is we're, we don't have control over any of that stuff. You know? And if you think you're trying to control it, then you are going to get frustrated and you're going to quit. The only thing you really have control over is um, your enjoyment of the sport and your drive for self-improvement. It doesn't mean you're going to be great every time out there or be spot on because we know that's hard to do. We try our best. But if you are continuing to study your rules, go to camps and clinics, self-reflect in a very effective way so that you can get better, um, get feedback from umpiring colleagues, and try to get just a little bit better every game. There's always little things that we know, even if it didn't make any difference and maybe nobody else really noticed it. There's all kinds of little things every game that we can try to get better. And I don't think I'm ever going to be perfect. I, I don't think so. And I, I, I bet you that most uh, professional umpires, and even these major league guys, I mean, yeah, they look like sometimes they're doing a perfect job, but there's probably things for them every game as well that they need to continue to work on. And sometimes it's something you think you took care of. You know, Maybe you're real good now at pause, read, and react on fly balls in your area. 
But then for some reason, you seem to regress and you've got to work on that again. Maybe you felt like your timing, you know, on calling balls and strikes, you've overcome some issues maybe you have when you were calling things a little too quickly. And then all of a sudden, you're calling things quickly again. There's always something that's popping up. You just have to embrace that battle that there's always something like that and try to get as close to perfection as you can um, before, you know, we can't do this anymore. Your body breaks down on you or, you you know, whatever the case is. That's usually the case, you know, or your situation in your life makes it so that you can't umpire baseball, okay? So knowing that you're never really going to reach perfection, but you're going to get as close as you can. I mean, there's 100% perfection. We're not going to reach that. But, you know, maybe we can get to 90-something percent, right? You know, Um, get, you know, as close as we can to that. And then when it's all said and done and we're sitting back and we're old people, uh, we can think about, you know, what we accomplished and that we have that drive to try to be as perfect as we can. So those are the kind of things I was thinking about when I read through some of uh, Troy's messages is... um, that you got to have that motor, right? We talked about that with Matt as well. The motor to keep getting better and to um, being okay with mistakes, um, being self-critical but not deprecating, you know, not not beating yourself up about it, right? I mean, if you start doing that and you start letting all these things get to you, then then you're going to quit. So hopefully you guys aren't going to do that, right? You're going to just keep fighting the good fight, and uh, it's a slow process for most of us. I mean, yeah, there's there's you know, guys like Matt that move quicker than a lot of other people. They're the fast track kind of guys here and there, but uh, you know they have uh, certain things that uh, are working for them. So that's fine. You know that's the way it goes sometimes doesn't mean you can't accomplish a lot of things that you're hoping to accomplish in your umpiring career and uh, you never know how things are going to work out right so when things seem like they're going bad you just keep keep fighting the fight and things would turn around and then all of a sudden you're like wow you know this worked out okay so that's kind of my uh, I guess my little pep talk for you for this week when uh, when things get rough because you know what they're going to get rough. <laughs> they always do. You never go through a season and everything's just like picture perfect, man. You worked 100 plus games or something and everyone was, you know, like, you know, living in paradise or something, you know, living the dream or whatever. We know that's not the case. If that was the case, everybody would be doing this and uh, trying to make some money at it or something. So keep your heads in there. Keep your heads up and uh, keep fighting the good fight every time you walk on the field. For this week's Umpire Spotlight, I'm going to do something a little bit different. I'm going to spotlight a state. And it happens to be, of course, the state I live in, Michigan. Uh, We've been uh, privileged to have several Major League umpires come from the state of Michigan, uh, particularly uh, the southwest side of the state and the western side of the state. Um, Serving in the major leagues, we've got Scott Berry, uh, who's from 
uh, Quincy High, which is near Battle Creek, Michigan, and he's uh, been in the major leagues, I think, five or six years now. Tim Welke, uh, he's from Coldwater, and he still lives in Michigan, and he was uh, a 30-year major league umpire. And then there is, of course, his brother, Bill Welke, who's also from Coldwater and still lives in Michigan, who's uh, been in the major leagues, I think, 14 or 15 years. Then there is um, Jeff Kellogg, who is uh, also from Coldwater, and he has been a major league umpire for well over 20 years now. And as far as other umpires that are from Michigan that have been in the major leagues, there, Tim McClellan was a Michigan State University graduate who was a major league umpire. Paul um, Emel was from Central Michigan University. And current major league umpire D.J. Rayburn uh, went to Hope College, which is in Holland, Michigan, uh, here on the west side. It's about 40 miles from where I live. So we do have some connections with um, major league umpires here in Michigan. I know other states might, but uh, you know, as far as the population of Michigan, particularly the southwestern part of the state, that's a pretty uh, pretty good percentage of of major league umpires. To go with that, we also have a, a good um, crop of collegiate umpires, and there are three I know of off the top of my head. No, four actually that I know off the top of my head that have worked. Actually, five. I'm thinking more as I'm talking. Sorry, five that uh, live in Michigan that have worked the College World Series. Uh, we have one of our, you know, our umpire, um, our main umpire signer here for the CBUA, uh, Rich Fetchett, uh, worked, I believe, multiple College World Series. Um, Mark Ewell, who is currently the the head of the MHSAA, um, worked two College World Series. Um, Mike Duffy, who lives here in Grand Rapids, who I've had the privilege of working with on a few occasions, um, has worked a College World Series and is a, a current uh, collegiate umpire, um, still is doing it. And uh, also Perry Costello, who has worked several College World Series, including last year's. Um, he's from the Lansing area. And Mike Conlon, who is currently a another assigner uh, for Division I games in this part of the country, he has worked, I believe, multiple College World Series as well. I might be missing somebody, but that's that's pretty impressive. I mean, just the uh, the talent pool uh, in Michigan and in general in the Midwest, but definitely in Michigan of, uh, umpiring is very high. That's why we have some good camps and things here. And, and there are um, lots of minor league umpires that have worked through, um, the ranks here in Michigan as well. So we got a lot of guys with a lot of knowledge and a lot of skill, um, to draw on for camps and clinics and everything else around here. So, um, I guess that's why uh, I've been lucky to uh, run into a few of those people and benefit from some of their wisdom um, over the last few years. And that's um, the case with you know our interview today with, uh, with Matt Lukowski, 
Um, and he has definitely benefited from the kind of umpiring pedigree that we have here in the state of Michigan, particularly in mid-Michigan and West Michigan. I'm sure many of you in your area of the country or other parts of the world uh, have some significant umpires that have come from your area. I'm interested to know um, what that might be. Feel free to uh, send me an email or tweet me or uh, leave a voice message through the Anchor app and let me know what kind of umpires have come from your part of the country. So that's what we have. Uh, I guess the spotlight, the umpire spotlight this week is the state of Michigan. So that, that's what we got for this week. A little bit different. Try to change it up a little bit. That brings us to the end of another episode. Hopefully you enjoyed it and you enjoyed my interview with Matt Wachowski. I appreciate him coming on the show and uh, talking to us. I, I plan in the future to get him back on to find out how things are going with him in minor league baseball and uh, see what the differences are between you know the collegiate ball he's worked and minor league ball. I'd be very interested to know how it goes. We also have a, a little running bet here uh, with the, the local Grand Rapids umpires of uh, – how many ejections Matt might have. Uh, Matt's known as um, a bit of a, well, I wouldn't necessarily say, well, I guess some people would say a, a quick trigger. Uh, he's not afraid to eject somebody. I think the people he ejects um, are, it's legitimate, but he, he never misses the opportunity to eject someone that is willing to have themselves ejected. Let's just put it that way. He, he definitely sides on the, on the, on you know, running guys more than not. Okay. So, um, you know, some guys are saying he might have three. I'm kind of going, I'm thinking five. I think he might have five ejections in his uh, first minor league season, but we'll see how it goes. We'll see how many he has and how many reports he wants to write as he gets through it. So if you have any questions you want me to ask him in the future um, episode, make sure you send those my way and, and check out our uh, Facebook page, which we're getting more and more likes for. It's the Hammer Podcast on Facebook. I also tweet out things uh, from time to time. Uh, at uh, my handle is at Kevin R Weber, Weber with one B. And uh, of course, you can always email me. I get lots of people that send me emails, and and I really appreciate that. And I, and I read them all, and I respond. So my email address is uh, Spinal Fusion. 06 at yahoo.com and all those things are also on the anchor homepage there you can see them there if you look at the the podcast homepage so they're pretty easy to find if you don't remember that I didn't really get a chance to write it down so you know hopefully you've been watching some some baseball I mean we've got some spring training stuff on TV of course you can be watching that there's lots of college baseball out there to be seen uh, through the different streaming apps, particularly the ESPN app. And you should be watching the umpires and seeing how they're doing. I was watching a game the other day, and some guys were working three-man. And by the third inning, the first base umpire had taken um, three plays in foul territory. Um, the first play, you know was, you know, maybe he got pushed a little bit. It was a play that the second baseman had to roam pretty far toward the line. So I could kind of give him that one. But the other ones, 
I don't know about that. And we, we talked about, you know, the dangers uh, in past episodes of taking plays in a foul territory. I think sometimes guys do that when uh, they're working three or four men because they know they got somebody covering second base, so they feel like they can get over there. But uh, that's not what the NCAA wants us to do now. They want all plays taken from fair territory, at least a couple feet inside fair territory. Um, that's kind of the goal. So if you're somebody that works three-man frequently, um, hopefully you can uh, look at the mechanics that are suggested out there and hopefully the camps that maybe you've gone to talk about those things as well. But those are things you kind of notice when you're watching television and watching the umpires. And I, I watch a, a lot of games and I see a lot of good things. I mean, I, you know, 90% of the time what I see is some good stuff. But, uh, you know, and I learn from that as well. But uh, I definitely learn a few things from some mistakes that I see some guys make too and, and wonder why they're doing certain things that they are. So um, I suggest that you do that as well. And, um, and you know, there, there's definitely a lot to be, to be had from viewing other umpires and trying to improve our game from that. Anyway, hopefully the weather's getting warm where you are and you're going to be out on the ball field pretty soon if you're not already. My first games are coming up on March 14th, unless something pops up before that. So um, the season's just around the corner. Until then... Keep calling strikes.